So this uh, year, we'll be having readings from this book called The Island, an anthology of the Buddha's teachings on Nibbana. So uh, <coughs> there's a few different um, requests and suggestions for uh, uh, readings this year. So this one got the, uh, the most um, votes, as it were. So today I'll, uh, I thought I would just begin by reading the uh, mostly the introductory passages and so it leads into uh, where this book came from and the um, basic uh, principles behind uh, the um, uh, say arrangement of the texts that uh, were put together by uh, Ajahn Pasno and myself. We start off with the two prefaces, firstly by Ajahn Pasno. Having been a person who has enjoyed reading books, my involvement in the production of this volume has instilled in me a much greater appreciation for those who write books. When the end of suffering Nibbana is the topic, one would think that writing about it would be less suffering. Curious how things, some things are not as they appear. This took ten years to to uh, bring into being this book, so it's not a uh, not a quick process. My involvement with this began with my jotting down a variety of sutta quotes which I had come across in my readings, which I found inspiring, and which also, for me, helped to clarify the direct and immediate path of the Buddha. Mostly, they were things that I found helpful in my own practice and it was good to have them in one place for me to read from time to time. There was also a question in my own mind about the interest in the West concerning non-dual teachings, both within the Buddhist fold and outside it. When coming across passages that people were quoting, I found it striking how seldom that the words of the Buddha were being used to illustrate this. By slowly reflecting on various suttas which cropped up as interesting or striking, the nature of what is considered non-dual for me started to change. Basic teachings started to take on a new meaning. The teaching on non-self, which is totally fundamental, is an example. This is not an obscure teaching in the suttas. If there is any hint of self, a position is then taken and the whole realm of samsara unfolds. The Buddha points this out in many ways both in detail and in quite pithy discourses. The teaching on dependent origination is another example. It can get very complex and heady, but in essence this is a description of the Buddha's enlightenment and a way of viewing phenomena which takes us away from the narrative that we easily create, showing that experience is just these mental and physical conditions functioning together in a certain pattern, either for freedom or for entanglement. Generally, it's stated that the Buddha did not teach much about Nibbāna, that he focused more on the path of practice and left it to us to figure it out for ourselves, if we followed the path correctly. On a certain level, this may be true, but as this compilation shows, the Buddha did say a great deal about Nibbāna. A large part of the motivation to help bring this book into being was to gather together quotes of the Buddha's own words from the discourses which helped to illustrate and, hopefully, clarify the Buddha's teachings, in particular those about the goal, Nibbāna. We are, in a way, taking the opportunity to bring out jewels and treasures from a cave or a hidden place and allowing them to shine forth. Ideally, this is an opportunity to gather the words of the Buddha on a particular theme together into one place for people to delight in. Hopefully, the editors have not gone have not got in the way. Uh, sorry, hopefully the editors have not got in the way too much, and the Buddha's words and path are left clear. I do want to express my appreciation for all the many people who have helped to make this book become a reality, particularly Ajahn Amaro, who gently kept prodding me and was patient with my pace, or lack of it. As I said, this did take ten years to uh, come into being. So one of the things that uh, Ajahn Pasno refers to um, 
uh, earlier on in this little um, preface is how people tend to say, oh, well, the Buddha said, or uh, in the Buddha's teachings he says, and they'll make a statement, and, um, and often then that gets passed on, you know, you hear a certain person give a, a Dhamma talk, and then you, uh, you uh, quote that. Um, and so there's quite a number of things that you hear within the, the, uh, the field of Buddhist teachings that, uh, said, you know, the Buddha said such and such. And frequently it's not actually found in the suttas anywhere at all. <laughs> And uh, it's uh, somebody's take on uh, on a particular teaching, or it's something that the Dalai Lama said, or something that, that they read in a a, a, a book on um, Advaita Vedanta or something. So that uh, um, what uh, what Ajahn Pasno is saying here, um, and he said, I found it striking how seldom that the words of the Buddha were being used to illustrate this. So that. Um, uh, actually, going to the the suttas, going to the original text, and saying, "Okay, if this uh, this particular principle is being talked about, what what did the Buddha say about this, and how did he say it, um, and in, in what different ways did he illustrate that?" So that was um, also part of of uh, the in a way the inheritance of uh, an oral tradition that we we are, tend to be more um, a. Uh, say, a, a, a hearing Dhamma talks kind of a, a tradition in our community rather than a, a studious academic um, a tradition. And so that it's frequently the case that you hear uh, things in Dhamma talks from our, um, our teachers that uh, <coughs> they, uh, are sort of passed on from generation to generation. And so it's uh, part of this was... To, to follow those things up and say, okay, well, you know, Lumpur Chao uses that example. Where did he get that from? Or, yeah, he used that as a simile. So that, uh, that's, that's come from a source. Now, now where, did that, where did that arise from? So there was a lot of detective work that was involved in, in putting this book together uh, for us. We had uh, particular teachings, say, of Lumpur Sumedho, Lumpur Chao, and uh, other Ajahns, Ajahn Mahabur, and say, okay, well, <laughs> so uh, where did that come from? What's what's the origin of that? And um, or or the things that would frequently be be said by Western Dhamma teachers, um, and to say, well, did the Buddha actually ever say that? You know, you keep hearing, say, Jack Cornfield saying such and such. Okay, well, where does he get that from? Well, you know, where's where's the Buddha supposed to have said that? So that uh, it was very illuminating, and as he points out, that. Uh, particularly um, teachings on on not self and on dependent origination, that as you start to look into the the um, Buddha Vajrayana, the the word of the Buddha on those those teachings, you find that it's often a lot more uh, uh, nuanced, many different facets of those teachings about not self or or different ways that say dependent origination is is talked about. That that uh, I also found along the way. Oh, that's interesting. Ah. Oh, yeah, and that's a, that's a surprise. I didn't know that, that that particular teaching was there. And so with things like dependent origination, which is um, a, th- a theme for a whole book or a series of books itself, <laughs> to, to find, uh, I think there's about nine different patterns, uh, nine different recensions that you find in the suttas of, of the uh, different orderings or, or um, the uh, uh, the different way what's classically presented as the twelve links of dependent origination of, of um, conditioned causation that sometimes there's there's nine sometimes there's thirteen sometimes it sort of <coughs> it doesn't go back as far as um, as avicca as ignorance it goes only goes back to uh, nama rupa and vinyana to mind and body and consciousness or it um, or it's some one it goes back before ignorance you know, what's the cause of ignorance and so on. So there was a lot of a very, um, just in the process of, of um, uh, preparing and exploring materials for, the, for this book, there was a, a lot of, of um, discovery going on. And also, as Ajahn Pasna was saying, in, in his, own, um, uh, his own practice of jotting things down that uh, he'd found over the years, uh, his particular understanding of areas of the teachings getting more... Um, Broad and and also um, getting a, a more clarif- a more fully clarified as as time went by. Any questions on that before we continue? Okay, so far so good. So then, my introduction.
Also, I feel a bit strange about sort of reading out my own book, but <laughs> um, I also have um, tendencies towards egomania, so I'm not. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not. It's not too weird, but uh, it is a bit. Uh, and but also the essence of the book is the, the sutta quotations and the quotations of the great um, sort of spiritual masters, rather than just uh, the commentaries of me and Ajahn Pasno. So. I feel a little bit more okay about that. So this is my introduction. For myself, the very first seed for the idea of this compilation of the Buddha's teachings was sown sometime in 1980. I'd been living for a few months at the newly opened monastery at Chithurst in West Sussex, England. I had only arrived there the previous autumn from Thailand. I'd been ordained as a monk for scarcely a year and I was still very new to the whole thing. As I listened to the daily Dhamma talks of Ajahn Sumedha, the abbot and founder of the monastery, I noticed that over and over again he made mention of ultimate reality, the unconditioned, the unborn, Nibbana. This was very striking since, during my couple of years in monasteries in Thailand, I had hardly heard a word spoken about this, even though it was the goal of the spiritual life. Certainly that goal of the realization of Nibbana was acknowledged as the overriding aim of the practice. However, it was stressed repeatedly that the Buddha's emphasis was on the path, the means whereby that goal could genuinely be reached, rather than on rendering inspiring descriptions of the end to which the path led. Make the journey, it was said. The nature of the destination takes care of itself and will be vividly apparent on arrival. Besides, the true nature of ultimate reality is necessarily inexpressible by language or concept. So, just make the journey and be content. This had made sense to me, so I now wondered why it was that Ajahn Sumedha made such an emphasis on it. Being an inquisitive sort, and not very good at holding back, uh, <clears throat> one day I asked the question straight out. His reply struck me very deeply and affected the way in which I have thought and spoken ever since. He said, After teaching in the West for a very short period of time, so he'd, uh, he'd only come to, to teach in, uh, in England uh, in 1977, May of 77, he and Ajahn Chah had come to, to pay that uh, visit and to um, uh, <coughs> spend time at the Hampstead Vihara in London and um, give talks and then Lumpur Jha had gone back to Thailand and left uh, Lumpur Sumato and, and three other monks there in London. So this was only, um, say, late 79. So this is only really two, two and a half years later we, I had this conversation with, with uh, Lumpur Sumato. After teaching in the West for a very short period of time, I began to see that many people were disappointed both in materialism and theistic religions. To them, Buddhism had great appeal but, lacking any fundamental sense of, or faith in the transcendent, the practice of Buddhism became almost a dry technical procedure, intellectually satisfying, but strangely sterile as well. They had largely rejected the idea of an ultimate reality from their thoughts as being intrinsically theistic nonsense. So I realized that people needed to be aware that there was also such a principle in the Buddha's teachings without there being any hint of a creator god in the picture. In Thailand, because there is already such a broad and strong basis of faith in these transcendent qualities, there's no need to talk about ultimate reality, the unconditioned and so forth. For them it can be a distraction. Here, I saw that people needed something to look up to. That's why I talk about it all the time. It goes a long way to cultivating faith, and it gives a much more living and expansive quality to their spiritual life. There's a natural joy when the heart opens to its true nature. So that was a... a, I'm a a a thinking type of a person and usually I'd uh, try and figure things out on my own. I'd listen to Dhamma talks. So this is one of the very rare occasions when I actually asked Lumpur Sumato a a Dhamma question. And uh, it was very impactful, this response that he made, because it was... Uh, it was really very clear that he'd made a deliberate uh, choice to speak about uh, the unconditioned, about ultimate reality, about the, the unborn, the un- 
uncreated and uh, and uh, nibbana, and it was with a particular goal in mind. So, and I think that's uh, things. That the landscape's changed a little bit now. This was when he first came. It was the seventies. So the majority of the the people who are practicing Buddhism had often had not had much of a background in meditation, but had had really come into Buddhism through a a much more um, so a society much more dominated by sort of traditional Church of England thinking or Catholic or, um, or uh, uh, Jewish uh, theology um, in the in people's mindsets and having pushed aside those theistic religions and the kind of having grown up with a being um, told you should believe in God and um, believe in the Bible and so forth. Uh, the landscape has changed a bit now, but uh, that was very much the, um, the the kind of audience that he was talking to, were people disaffected with those uh, uh, theistic spiritual teachings and were, were approaching Buddhism as a kind of, um, uh, almost like a mechanistic mind training and didn't uh, really have the sense of of transcendence or of uh, of, uh, of the ultimate reality, where without the idea of a, a, a sort of theistic view to or some kind of supreme deity that was running everything in the background, so um, that <coughs> that really is <laughs> one of the uh, the main reasons why this this book exists, um, and uh, and then uh, I go on to explain that some of the other. Uh, say origins of it. Fast forward now to late 1997. Other seeds for this anthology began to come from several different directions. One of these was a conversation with Nancy Van House in the parking lot of an Episcopalian church in Palo Alto at the end of a weekend session on the subject of the graduated teachings, the Anupubhikata. The weekend had been organized by the Sati Center, a Buddhist studies group based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and people were keen for more such sessions in the future. Do you have any suggestions for topics? I asked as we walked towards our vehicles, arms laden with sundry mats, folders and shrine gear. How about Nibbana? replied Nancy, smiling gleefully. Now, that should be interesting, thought I. The subject had, predictably, come up a few times during the weekend and it was clear that people had all sorts of conflicting or unformed feelings and impressions about what the word meant, how important it was or wasn't, and how attainable or unattainable it might be. In people's minds it seemed to be like some sort of ancient or mythical country, like Wallachia or Avalon, Bactria or Udiana, written and spoken of by some as familiar and commonplace, yet mysterious and distant, full of complexities to the neophyte. Great idea, I replied. Not long after this, as I began to gather my wits, crack a few books of Pali suttas and pick Ajahnpasana's brains on the subject, I was approached by James Barras, who's one of the um, Spirit Rock uh, Dhamma teachers, uh, San Francisco Bay um, uh, Theravada teachers. <clears throat> I was approached by James Barras with the request that I help out with his new Community Dharma Leaders program. This is an effort to give people who lead meditation groups or otherwise have responsible roles in their Dharma communities all around the USA a more complete foundation in the teachings and more external support for their work and practice. They were due to have their inaugural weekend, week-long session at Santa Sabina Retreat Center in San Rafael and James wanted to know what I would like to offer when I came along. Well, what would you like me to talk about, I replied. Well, there's so much interest in Advaita Vedanta and Dzogchen amongst the Vipassana community these days. I thought it might be interesting if you were able to talk about similar non-duality, quote-unquote, teachings in the Theravada. I know there are some, but I'm not knowledgeable enough to track them all down. It would be really interesting if you could do that. People seem to have the idea that such teachings do not exist in the Theravada world, so they feel that they have to look for them elsewhere. It would be great if you could present something on this. I told him that I had begun to research that very same thing, and so the momentum gathered. As we settled into our winter retreat of January and February 1998, I got more <coughs> into more discussions on the subject with Ajahn Pasano. It turned out that he had been gathering quotations on this same area of the teachings for years. He had jewels stashed away that I never dreamed existed. 
Slowly the piles of paper increased, the scanner hummed, and the material sorted itself into a number of convenient, if not definitive, headings. As time went by, and the collection got presented on different occasions, more and more elements fell into place, and the shape of the notes became more refined. So, uh, and this, um, in particular, that, that was a, a very common dynamic. I was, was teaching in California from uh, 1990, and there was a, very much this, this view of, well, we really like the retreats. Uh, the kind of uh, retreat practice was very much the Mahasi side or, or Goenka-style retreats, silent, very systematic retreats based around developing concentration and, uh, and, and insight. Um, but it was almost... Uh, um, well, a very large proportion, if not the majority of people, were going to Advaita teachers, people like um, Nisargadatta Maharaj or um, Punjaji um, <coughs> or yeah, Andrew Cohen um, or um, going to Dzogchen teachings like uh, um, uh, Toku Urgen or uh, Sokni Rinpoche, these sort of uh, Tibetan lamas teaching this uh, Dzogchen um, method of, of meditation understanding because of that, that they didn't have those kind of um, teaching or didn't feel they had those kind of teachings in the Theravada field and so that was uh, uh, over and over again you, you would be talking with very uh, Dhamma teachers or who are you know, full-time Theravada <laughs> practitioners but they were going off on retreats with Tibetan lamas or going off to India and spending time with Punjaji and so forth, very much sort of automatic matter of course. And, and the assumption was, or the, the understanding was, well, this, well, we go there because those, these things don't exist within Theravada. So part of the motivation for this book was also to say, well, <coughs> actually, <laughs> not to be too sort of self-righteous, to say, well, you know, they did uh, <coughs> have resources uh, that, uh, come, uh, that you can find in the Pali Canon. And it is really kind of interesting when you... you uh, track down various uh, teachings, like one particular um, book of Zogchen teachings um, that, I, uh, <coughs> that I was given, that uh, it has this long, uh, this long list of, of, sort of eight levels of practice, and of course Theravada comes at sort of level, and that's sort of nine levels of practice, and of course we're at level nine, down at the bottom of the heap, <laughs> that we, we don't come across very, very, uh, <coughs> in a very impressive way in the estimation of, of the sort of the motivations or what's behind different uh, forms of practice. But then when you go into this, um, uh, the, the teaching, okay, what's this super high teaching that is so superior or so advanced or so beyond what Theravada can offer? And um, <clears throat> this was a, the translator was a, a man called John Meridin Reynolds with this particular book. And so I was reading it through and think, okay, there's this long build-up, okay, with sort of the intro to this sort of super high profound teaching and okay, yeah, okay, well, yeah. So we're getting there and then finally you get the, the transmission of the super high teaching. And the super high teaching is that, um, that uh, the, the, um, the essence of wisdom is embodying the, uh, the quality of awareness of the mind. So, like, being the knowing of the mind. I said, well, um, I've heard that before. <laughs> that sounds very, very familiar. But uh, this is a... Um, so there was also that kind of... Uh, not that we're having to say, excuse us, you know, we're, we're just as important as you are, and, and do you mind? And kind of that sort of huffy, uh, Theravada-ish, you know, uh, kind of a self-righteous way. But it was very, it was kind of neat to, to actually follow a few of those things up, both in, from Advaita Vedanta and the, these Tibetan teachings. Um, uh, I think it was, uh, I think that John, Ren John Meridian Reynolds' book was called um, A Liberation Through Awakened Awareness, or something, I, I, something like that, I forget exactly. But, um, and so when you, when you track it down, you find those tremendous parallels with the forest tradition and then also going back to the original... Um, sources and finding the, the particular statements of the Buddha right there in the in the Pali Canon. It was also kind of interesting when that, just as an aside, um, when I was asked to do this presentation at Santa Sabina, so I've been getting all these notes about all, all the unconditioned and Nibbana and the ultimate reality, and so I got this whole sort of spiel on, on these sort of super high transcendent teachings, and I was violently ill. <laughs> Uh, I'm usually generally pretty healthy, 
And uh, so I was uh, at the, went to this this group, um, uh, the the community dharma leaders group, and so I was due to give a, give the presentation at about nine in the morning, and at uh, 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 eight forty five I was in the bathroom, vomiting, you know, projectile vomiting, and just inc- sweating all over and like incredibly ill, and. Um, so, I, but there was this little voice in the back of my mind saying, "So, ultimate reality teachings, total non-attachment, right? Well, try this. <laughs> <laughs> Complete transcendence of body and mind." Like, and so, whether I was just projecting onto that, but it was pretty ironic because it was uh, okay, going to be coming into these all these super duper high-minded uh, esoteric um, uh, transcendent teachings and this extremely non-transcendent experience of. <laughs> Of curled up in a ball in the bathroom five minutes before I'm supposed to start speaking, so sweating and, and puking. It was, there was this kind of little voice saying, <laughs> "Okay, you're ready to give the teachings now." And, and it was kind of funny also because I, uh, it just sort of abated. I came out and did this hour-long presentation, and then, and then literally sort of fold up my sitting cloth and get to the door. <laughs> <laughs> kind of run for the bathroom again at the at the end of the um, transcendence. <laughs> so that was a, a you know it was a kind of whether it was my, just my projection or not. It's like when you when you talk about these um, these kind of elevated areas of dhamma and talk about transcendence, you know it, it's very easy just the the head talking, and that uh, you've got to. Uh, match your really, you know, and for these to be meaningful, you really have to pr- match your practice to the what to what's being talked about. So, uh, sort of curled up in a heap, sweating and vomiting, <laughs> puking, and okay, here here is some phenomena, feeling, feeling, <laughs> and uh, okay, is the is the mind able to simply be uh, abide in the awareness of this? Or, yeah, and uh, okay, then if so, then you're ready to talk about it. If not, then Leave it alone. So, to carry on then. So, what is presented here in this book is neither presumed to be definitive, like the last word on the subject, nor exhaustive, not like everything that can be said about it. It is simply an attempt by Ajahn Pasna and myself to put together a small compendium of these essence teachings of the Buddha as they appear in the Pali Canon and have been conveyed by the lineages that rely upon them, the Thai forest tradition in particular, in the hope that they will be of benefit to those who rejoice in the liberation of the heart. All the other references that are made herein, whether drawing on Thai forest meditation masters, modern science, classical literature, northern Buddhism, or whatever, are made solely to help illustrate the meaning of the Pali. It is the faith of the editors that the Buddha's words can speak for themselves, and this work has been compiled with that intention. It should also be said that we have largely quoted here contemporary passages and sources with which Ajahn Pasano and I have had direct contact. Thus, the voice representing the Theravada world here is principally that of the Thai forest tradition rather than that of the Burmese, uh, of that of Burmese or Sri Lankan masters. With respect to the northern Buddhist world, it's mainly the scriptures and teachings that we have received through personal contacts that have found their way onto these pages. In particular, we've had close connection and friendship with the city of 10,000 Buddhas. The late founding abbot, Venerable Master Xuan Hua, donated half the land that comprises Abhayagiri Monastery. Again, there is no intention to exclude any other worthwhile points of view. It is solely the wish to present practices and teachings that we have used and benefited from ourselves that has defined the choice of material. Lastly, we will be delighted to be introduced to any similar or compatible passages from the Pali Canon or other sources for possible inclusion in future editions. Any questions on that piece? The next part is Ajahn Lumpur Sameto's introduction. Okay. So this was an introduction that um, was offered by Lumpur Sumato. This was um, done from a recording of a conversation with him. Asked uh, if Lumpur, could you 
do a little introduction for this uh, book that Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro are doing. And stuck one of these in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is what Lumpur, uh, Lumpur Sumedho said, because he's very much the, uh, say, the um, guiding spirit behind this, this uh, book of, uh, of teachings as well. A difficulty with the word Nibbana is that its meaning is beyond the power of words to describe. It is, essentially, undefinable. Another difficulty is that many Buddhists see Nibbana as something unobtainable, as so high and so remote that we're not worthy enough to try for it. Or we see Nibbana as a goal, as an unknown, undefined something that we should somehow try to attain. Most of us are conditioned in this way. We want to achieve or attain something that we don't have now. So Nibbana is looked at as something that, if you work hard, keep the sila, meditate diligently, become a monastic, devote your life to practice, then your reward might be that eventually you attain Nibbana, even though we're not sure what it is. <laughs> so Ajahn Chah would use the words quote, the reality of non-grasping, unquote, as the definition for Nibbāna. Realising the reality of non-grasping. That helps to put it into a context, because the emphasis is on awakening to how we grasp and hold on even to words like Nibbāna, or Buddhism, or practice, or sila, or whatever. It's often said that the Buddhist way is not to grasp, but that can become just another statement that we grasp and hold on to. It's a catch-22. No matter how hard you try to make sense out of it, you end up in total confusion because of the limitation of language and perception. You have to go beyond language and perception. And the only way to go beyond thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them. Through awareness of thought. Through awareness of emotion. Quote, the island that you cannot go beyond, unquote, is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. Okay, so that's a very important sentence. I'll read that again. So, the island that you cannot go beyond, which is a quote from the, the, the Buddha in the um, Sutta Nipata, the island that you cannot go beyond is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. So, uh, this capacity of the mind to be awake and aware, the island that is the title of the book, that awareness is the island. That is the island that you, know, you can't, that, uh, that's the, the back wall of experience, as it were. That's the island that, that you cannot go beyond. So it's the island being a safe place, being a refuge in the, the uh, stormy seas. But <clears throat> it's, a, it's a, a short sentence, but that kind of is the, uh, the, the essence, the, the, the fundamental kind of, um, image of, of the, uh, of the, the informs the title of the book. The island that you cannot go beyond is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. We create an idea of awareness, of that awareness. When I get that, then I will. <laughs> but the actual quality of knowing right now, that is, that is the, the island that you cannot go beyond. In meditation classes, people often start with a basic delusion that they never challenge. The idea that I'm someone who grasps and has a lot of desires and I have to practice in order to get rid of these desires and to stop grasping and clinging to things. I shouldn't cling to anything. That's often the position we start from. So we start our practice from the basis from this sorry, so we start our practice from this basis and many times the result is disillusionment and disappointment because our practice is based on the grasping of an idea. Eventually, we realize that no matter how much we try to get rid of desire and not grasp anything, no matter what we do, become a monk, an ascetic, sit for hours and hours, attend retreats over and over again, 
Do all the things we believe will get rid of those these grasping tendencies. We end up feeling disappointed because the basic delusion has never been recognized. This is why the metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so very powerful because it points to the principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple, very direct, and you can't conceive it. You have to trust it. You have to trust the simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake and begin to recognize the grasping and the ideas that <clears throat> we have taken on about ourselves, about the world around us, about our thoughts and perceptions <coughs> and feelings. The way of mindfulness is the way of recognizing conditions just as they are. We simply recognize and acknowledge their presence without blaming them or judging them or criticizing them or praising them. We allow them to be, the positive and the negative both. And, as we trust in this way of mindfulness more and more, we begin to realize the reality of the island that you cannot go beyond. When I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused. And I wanted to get out of this confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused. Someone who was a clear thinker. Someone who would maybe one day become enlightened. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. But then, by reflecting on this position that, quote, I am somebody who needs to do something, I began to see it as a created condition. It was an assumption that I had created. And if I operated from that assumption, then I might develop all kinds of skills and live a life that was praiseworthy and good and beneficial to myself and to others, but... At the end of the day, I might feel quite disappointed that I did not attain the goal of Nibbana. Fortunately, the whole direction of monastic life is one where everything is directed at the present. You're always learning to challenge and to see through your assumptions about yourself. One of the major challenges is the assumption that, quote, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future, unquote. Just by recognizing this as an assumption I created, that which is aware knows it is something created out of ignorance, out of not understanding. When we see and recognize this fully, then we stop creating the assumptions. Awareness is not about making value judgments about our thoughts or emotions or actions or speech. Awareness is about knowing these things fully, that they are what they are at this moment. So what I found very helpful was learning to be aware of conditions without judging them. In this way, the resultant karma of past actions and speech as it arises in the present is fully recognized without compounding it, without making it into a problem. It is what it is. What arises ceases. As we recognize that and allow things to cease according to their nature, the realization of cessation gives us an increasing amount of faith in the practice of non-attachment and letting go. The attachments that we have, even to good things like Buddhism, can also be seen as attachments that blind us. That doesn't mean that we need to get rid of Buddhism. We merely recognize attachment as attachment, and that we create it ourselves out of ignorance. As we keep reflecting on this, the tendency towards attachment falls away, and the reality of non-attachment non-grasping reveals itself in what we can say is Nibbāna. If we look at it in this way, Nibbāna is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. It's so very simple, but beyond description. It can't be bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves. As one begins to realize or to recognize non-grasping as the way, then emotionally one can feel quite frightened by it. It can seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, starts falling apart, and it can be frightening. But if we have the faith to continue bearing with these emotional reactions, 
and allow things that arise to cease, to appear and disappear according to their nature, then we find our stability not in achievement or in attaining, but in being, being awake, being aware. Now, this is a very familiar theme uh, of uh, Lumpur Sumato's, um, at, uh, and he used to often use the uh, the phrase of making a paradigm shift from I'm somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. Uh, from the uh, the paradigm shift from me and my enlightenment project or me and my problems to the Buddha seeing the Dhamma or the awake mind seeing the way things are. And so that uh, <coughs> reframing of the, the way that experience is, is, is held is a, a key element here because on... <coughs> Many of us might hear those words and say, well, I'm somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. Quite a number of you probably thought, yes, right. <laughs> that's that's uh, what we are uh, all doing, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't that what it says on the program? <laughs> and uh, this is, uh, uh, a, a, say, particularly um, pertinent, uh, sort of a relevant teaching for these teachings on, on Nibbana because what Lumpur Sumaita has been talking about the last 40 years <laughs> is how that which seems reasonable on the ordinary everyday level, like I'm doing something now to become enlightened in the future, is like saying the sun comes up in the east yes, because the earth spins and we are humans sitting on the surface of the earth and we call that direction east but the sun doesn't really rise in the east it's only the turning of the earth that makes that appear that way so that in a similar fashion um, it's like changing the point of view like if you leave the earth and, and take the position of the sun then it's the earth spinning that creates the sunrise not the anything that the sun is doing um, and so that it's like changing the position changing the point of, of view uh, and that rather than Nibbana has been seen as some sort of distant um, super event off in the future. Rather, when the mind changes its, its, its view, changes its, its position of understanding. As he says that uh, Nibbana is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. So when the, that view is changed, rather, here's the awake mind aware of liking, disliking, gaining, losing, comfort, discomfort. When the, the mind changes the, the, the view and is awake to the present, then in that moment of, uh, of clarity, the, and the, particularly if that clarity illuminates the feelings of I and me and mine and uh, reveals them as emptier substance, then that is Nibbana here and now. And uh, that is uh, that uh, quality of clarity, simplicity, peacefulness that is uh, experienced here and now. So then to finish his little piece here. Many years ago, in William James's book, the variety of religious ex the varieties of religious experience, I found a poem by Algernon Charles Swinburne. In spite of having what some have described as a degenerate mind, Swinburne, Swinburne wasn't brilliant on the sila aspect of things, shall we say. But he was a good poet. So. <laughs> In spite of having what some have described as a degenerate mind, Swinburne produced some very powerful reflections. And here is a, a quote from um, his poem called On the Verge. Here begins the sea that ends not till the world's end. Where we stand, could we know the next high sea mark set beyond these waves that gleam? We should know what never man hath known, nor eye of man hath scanned. Ah, but here man's heart leaps, yearning towards the gloom with venturous glee, from the shore that hath no shore beyond it, set in all the sea. I found in this poem an echo of the Buddha's response to Kappa's question in the Sutta Nipata. So this is a quote from Sutta Nipata itself. Uh, this is uh, Venerable Dr. Saratissa's translation. 
Next was the Brahmin student Kappa. Sir, he said, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being, and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sakes, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Kappa, said the master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana, the extinguished, the cool. There are people who, in mindfulness, have realized this and are completely cooled, here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. So Don Posumato continues. In English, nothingness, quote-unquote, can sound like annihilation, like nihilism. But you can also emphasize the thingness so that it becomes no thingness. So, Nibbana is not a thing that you can find. It's the place of no thingness, quote-unquote. A place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment. It is a place, as Ajahn Chah said, where you experience, quote, the reality of non-grasping. This anthology, The Island, reflects on this. It's Quotes and spiritual teachings are more pointers than definitions or specific directions. Through the use of various teachings, references, scriptures, and some of their own experience in practice, Ajahn Pasna and Ajahn Amaro are pointing to Nibbana, pointing out that Nibbana is a reality that each one of us can know for ourselves. Once we recognize non-attachment, once we, re- sorry, once we recognize non-attachment, once we realize the reality of non-grasping, Any comments, questions? Yes, Sutisa. It's how easy Well, it's one of those things, it's simple but not easy. Because uh, avijja pachaya sankara, the ignorant mind is conditioned to its habits. That's a uh, it's because we don't make that a priority and for a lifetime we've been um, trying to escape from painful things, chase after pleasant things. We've been uh, focused on our possessions, our emotions, our past, our future, our ideas, our career, our relationships, that the mind has invested that whole field of perceptions with reality and try to develop all kinds of um, uh, refuges uh, taken taken hold and seen value and permanence, meaning in uh, this big variety of perceptions and feelings and qualities of of the mind and the world that it's, uh, it's hard to break those habits yeah, lump of tomato doesn't make it sound extremely easy. That word, just be awake. And that, that word just is a really big word. <laughs> it's only got four letters, but it's kind of very big. <laughs> uh, but that's the task, is uh, in a sense re- meeting, receiving the um, effects of a lifetime, or many, many lifetimes of, of that kind of conditioning. But the, the the mind's habits and learning to recognize no that's just a sound that's just a feeling that's that's just liking that's just disliking that's that's the feeling of ownership or that's the feeling of of regretting or that's the feeling of longing or that's the the feeling of doubt and it, and so we we practice to um, be 
familiar with those habits, and then this, the, particularly the teachings on anicca, dukkha, anatta, on uh, unsatisfactoriness, uh, uncertainty, not self, they're the, the principal tools whereby that seeing those habits and learning to not uh, identify, not, not to invest them with, with meaning or, or identity. That's that uh, like deconditioning the the mind of a lifetime of habits. But it's also uh, that uh, one of the the aspects of, of uh, and, uh, this and in, in this this book and also in in the forest the teachings of the forest masters it's very much the the um, recognition that it's a mistake to think of realizing nibbana as one sort of big kind of Ta-da! Yeah. Sort of grand finale, you know, fireworks and cannons. Da 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 da. Bum bum bum. You know, with uh, the sort of cannons and fireworks going off. But uh, but rather um, that it's uh, uh, it's a, a here and now experience. It's not a a kind of dramatic uh, ecstasy. But when the mind is <coughs> free of grasping, when when they say when the mind recognizes, oh, sutisara is just a perception. Oh, right there. Oh, this 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 sutisara thing. It's just this. Oh, just right there. That oh, <laughs> if if you kind of freeze that and and uh, explore the nature of that, oh, yeah, then. Uh, more often than not, when when that's looked at clearly, there's there's spaciousness, there's a, a kind of sense of normality of like, oh right, a kind of coming out of a dream. It's there's a sense of reality, a sense of spaciousness, a sense of of uh, of completeness. There's a a, a, a quality of of a wholeness. And at that moment, if and this is what one of the aspects of meditation really is, uh, um, supports and helps the mind to know that if that's uh, when those moments of clarity are, are established and uh, for at least even for a few seconds, then it can be recognised there's there's peacefulness, there's spaciousness, and there's no sense of I, and there's no sense of anything being needed or anything that's that's um, lacking or anything to get there's a well, you, you can say there's like an, an independence or a self-sufficiency and just getting a, a sense for that uh, and getting to know that quality of the mind free of grasping it's that the as uh, in that phrase that he uh, he's quoting quite often there the reality of non grasping when the grasping stops nibbana is what is is a description of the what's present and then if the thinking mind goes is this nibbana that's <laughs> that's another thing to be aware of <laughs> to not grasp yeah like, hurrah I've made it that's another thing to to not grasp. <laughs> What the mind is this? Is this really it, or is something else it? <laughs> that's another thing to not grasp. So that's why the, the the island that you cannot go beyond that quality of awareness is the back wall of experience, if you like. That's a meaningful experience. That you, you. <laughs> that's uh, that's the um, the fundamental reference point, because the mind keeps creating a an idea about it. Well, like, like uh, as Lumpur uh, Samedo puts it, it's, it's that the actual quality of awakened awareness rather than an idea about Nibbana. How did he put it? Let's see if I can find it. Uh, of course, you can't find it. <laughs> Yeah, the island that you cannot go beyond is the metaphor for the state of being awake and aware as opposed to the concept 
of becoming awake and aware. So that the, the mind creates concepts, like the word, it conceives, it kind of forms a, a kind of an idea about, or creates a, a, a word or a phrase or an image. And the, um, uh, the island, if you like, is that, that which is knowing the concept, that which is not caught into the mood or the feeling or the, that is the, um, the, the, sort of the ground of, of knowing. So it's simple, but it's very difficult. <laughs> and that's why we practice. That's why it's hour after hour, day after day, we, we practice because the, the habits are so strong. You know, the, the Buddha, in the Dhammapada, the Buddha says in the thousands, he says uh, it's easier for a, 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 you know, one soldier to defeat an army of a thousand single-handedly a thousand times over than it is for one person to, to conquer their mind. So you might think, well, I'll just go to the pub then. <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> but also, uh, you know, but I think it's helpful to be aware of the the extent of the task. That it is that that challenging, but also that uh, then we can recognise, well, yeah, it's challenging. That's that's a big undertaking, uh, but it's also the only thing that's really worth doing in my humble opinion. And so that uh, that, that quality of um, say being realistic, say, okay, well, there's, there is a lot of uh, very strong habits here and they are, and their depth of attachment and identification can be very, very powerful. But part of, of these, the, the usefulness of these kind of teachings and the, particularly the, uh, the the directness with which uh, Lumpur Sumato speaks about it there is that it's <clears throat> it's it's showing you the the direction to take or giving you a sense of how to hold the the task of practice how to the, the most skillful way of of um of, uh, say framing it because as you said that we we create this idea of I'm this person who's imperfect who's got lots of desires or fears and aversions and I've got to I am this person who's practicing and I've got these issues these 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 things are mine and I've got to get rid of them get rid of those defilements become enlightened and then so we've created a me who's the genuine possessor of these uh, unskillful qualities and a me who hasn't got this enlightenment thing who's got to get it in the future and so um, I think it was a very, very powerful insight for him years and years ago where he realized, that's right, I keep creating this me who needs to practice to get enlightened in the future. What's here now? Instead of, of creating a me, what's, what's here now? There's, there's awareness and there's this perception of a thought, I've got to do something now to become enlightened in the future. That's, the awareness is knowing that thought now. And that when that awareness is not identified with the thought, it can know the thought. It doesn't. It's not limited by that thought. It's not limited by that perception of an I feeling. That which knows the I is not I. Oh, so that was a very powerful insight for for Lumpur way back when. And that, uh, and if you've listened to his Dhamma talks or read his books, you know he says that over and over and over and over again. But it's uh, it's amazing how dense, how thick we are. Yeah, it's sort of patujana is a the literal translation for patujana, uh, putujon, is a, a someone who's thick. Yeah. So we're really thick. We have to keep hearing it over and over again. A thickster. <laughs> so that. Um, that's why we have to. That's why we practice, because it's the the strength of conditioning is is so strong. But the the framework for practice, I feel, is articulated so helpfully there, and that that image of the island that you cannot go beyond. You know, it's an island. You think, well, there must be. If it's an island, it's got water all around it. <laughs> so 
It's a kind of it's a strange image in some respect. It's an island, but you can't go beyond it. Huh? How is that? But when you see it's referring to this quality of awareness that you can't get behind awareness. Right? That's the you, you can't go beyond it. Uh, but it's also the safe place. So I see I see that uh, seven o'clock has come around already, and we have another three months for, to explore these teachings. We haven't even got to chapter one yet. <laughs> but uh, so we'll leave it there for today and uh, offer these things for us to consider.